COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Our frontline healthcare workers have been pushed well beyond their limits, often forced to make impossible choices. On the front lines, healthcare workers are exhausted, overwhelmed, and at times angry. She was starting to feel apathy toward her patients, a sign of burnout. These news clips may sound familiar to you, and you may have heard about healthcare provider burnout before. Over the last two years, healthcare provider burnout has been defined and redefined many times, particularly within the context of physicians and nurses. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated and revealed a problem that has existed within the healthcare system for years. A survey completed in 2018 by the Canadian Medical Association indicated that 30% of physicians have experienced burnout in their careers, and that was before the pandemic. On this episode, we discuss what burnout is, the gaps in the healthcare system that lead to burnout, as well as some ideas about how institutions can support healthcare providers and how burnout can be dealt with at the individual and systemic level. Before we continue, we would also like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, as well as the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. Much of the research investigating healthcare provider burnout is centered in urban settings, and this may not reflect the experiences of care providers and Indigenous healers working in rural settings, or that of Indigenous persons both on and off reserve. A 2021 article published in the BMC Health Services Research Journal noted that burnout among Northern physicians is multifactorial and has roots in context-specific issues in Northern health systems. We encourage our listeners to consider this as we continue our discussion on healthcare provider burnout. My name is Atifa. And my name is Helen. Welcome to episode 101 of Raw Talk Podcast. So, I mean, by definition, a superhero is, and this is from the dictionary, <laughs> it's a fictional hero having extraordinary or superhuman powers who possesses abilities beyond those of ordinary people. And that's problematic to, to sort of transplant those characteristics on a human being, let alone a nurse, right? And, and it's important that we look at the history of where superheroes came from and why. Uh, they were explicitly tied to the Second World War, and it's suggested by historians who sort of study this stuff that superheroes were deliberately positioned as war propaganda on behalf of the state, purposely evoking nationalism uh, and a united front against an enemy. And some people might think it's a little bit radical to think that this parallels how nurses have been positioned in the pandemic to evoke like a united front against COVID, but I, I don't actually think it's so radical. And, and you know, 
the superhero narrative, what it does is it presumes that nurses will sort of simply brush this off their shoulders um, and get on with it because that's what superheroes do. They prevail against all odds. So uh, I actually stumbled across um, a concept analysis and this is actually from last year because I think as we discussed, like COVID has really brought to light this idea of burnout again. So we're talking about it more. Um, and it's actually the best definition I have seen yet. So I'm just actually going to read it from them. <laughs> um, so it, it defines burnout as a state of physical, mental, emotional, and social exhaustion resulting from the negative effects of unmanaged occupational stress and inadequate managerial and social support, which reduces interest in and motivation for work, it affects care quality, and results in negative attitudes and behaviors towards self, clients, and the work. So that's very detailed, but it's very clear about what burnout is and isn't, and I think that's why I like it so much. We just heard from Dr. Kimberly McMillan, a nurse researcher and professor at the University of Ottawa. Her research focuses on how organizational life and moral nursing practice interact. Dr. McMillan reminded us that all care providers are human, not superhuman, who at times are unable to meet the extraordinary demands placed on them. We also hear from our other guests, both students and professionals, about their own perceptions of what burnout is. My name is Yazarni Nguyen. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Um, I am a second year psychiatry uh, resident physician at the University of Toronto and within the Department of Psychiatry, uh, mostly based at St. Mike's Hospital. So I guess that's my primary role right now that keeps me quite occupied. So I think um, in anticipation for this podcast, admittedly, I tried to do a little bit of background research just so that I kind of understood what burnout meant to the average person. So I, I saw a definition from the CMA, which I think is actually pretty accurate to what um, my idea of burnout is. Um, basically, the way they described it is a psychological syndrome of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal accomplishment. And I think that that definition actually pretty much like hits the nail on the head in terms of um, what I thought burnout might have meant. Uh, it made me reflect on kind of where I was at right now. And I actually think I, I might be in an episode of burnout right now, which didn't really cross my mind as, um, as clearly a few days ago. But I think after reading about it a little bit and um, having a lot of that information resonate with me, I kind of feel like I might be in an episode right now, um, which is unfortunate, but I think is the case with so many of my colleagues and so many people in healthcare. And just to preface, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more too, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, my life is like a disaster and that everything is falling apart or that I'm necessarily like depressed or um, in a very negative mental space. It really just comes back to that idea of emotional exhaustion and um, just feeling so fatigued, like even before you do something, you're just already tired to begin with. Um, so it's kind of that underlying feeling that I think I've been feeling for at least the past few few weeks, maybe months. Um, but I think a lot of people have probably um, faced at one point or another during the pandemic. My name is Simone Bernstein. I'm a resident physician in psychiatry and my pronouns are she, her. So burnout 
really is about feeling exhausted and feeling used up at the end of the workday. Whether you feel ineffective or you don't feel as productive, you just feel worn down. It's something that occurs throughout residency, especially when you are new coming out of medical school, you feel a sense of imposter syndrome and you're not quite sure what's going on or the fact that people are even calling you doctor just seems so unique and so different. And so when you're starting out in residency and working really long hours and overwhelmed by everything surrounding you, you really just don't know how to feel. And when somebody tells you, you know, that's what burnout is, it makes it feel so much more real. And then you have a way to define how you're feeling and you're able to talk with others who feel similarly and are going through that same experience of being a resident, especially during the time of a pandemic. There's times when I would just cry and be so frustrated and not quite sure how to label it. And you hear so much about depression and what depression is, especially as a psychiatry resident, we focus so much on what that means. But very few people will define burnout. And when you're a healthcare worker giving back to so many others, you are listening to so many different stories and trying to help so many different people that a lot of the times we forget to even help ourselves. As resident physicians, we need to take that time, we need to take that break to be able to recognize that we too might be suffering and we need to ask for help. So my name is Emily Rowland. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and my title is probably nurse and also PhD candidate. And my background is non-linear. Um, my journey into healthcare has kind of been up and down and pretty complex. I started with a master's in health systems where I looked at care delivery in neonatal intensive care units or NICUs. And with research, this kind of evolved into looking at nursing systems. And this was kind of my first experience looking at nurses. So for me, burnout looks like when you really lose your passion for the role that you have. It's really easy to become so overwhelmed to the point of exhaustion that you kind of remove yourself from what you're really doing and the purpose of why you started doing it. So to me, it's a little bit like when you become robotic, like you're just moving through the motions. And unfortunately with nursing, there's such a huge piece of empathy that plays a role in the way that you deliver care that once you become robotic you kind of lose that spark that probably brought you there in the first place and is really going to have an influence on the patients and their families and also your other team members right it's such a nursing is a really big team sport you all have to lift each other up and help each other out and so when even one piece of that starts getting heavier, it can really drag down. And I hate to use the word drag down, but unfortunately that is what it feels like. Um, It can really take the gas out of the whole machine. So my pronouns are he, him, and my name is Amit Arya. I'm a palliative care physician who works um, in the hospital. I work in long-term care facilities and in home care. So I have faculty appointments at the University of Toronto, where I'm a lecturer in the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and at McMaster University, where I'm an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Palliative Care, Department of Family Medicine, and I'm also a board member of the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians. So firstly, when I talk about my role, uh, I think a lot of people presume that I help people with achieving a good death, 
But actually, um, my bigger role is to help people live a good life until the day that they die. And that's really what palliative care is about. It's not just about providing care to people at the very end of life, but rather it's an approach to care for people who have incurable illnesses like cancer, um, COPD, heart failure, renal failure, or dementia. And the approach to care it prioritizes relief of suffering and quality of life. It prioritizes psychosocial and spiritual support of patients and families, along with helping people to understand their illness and planning for the future. So that really encapsulates what I do. And I'll also add that palliative care is not a location. Palliative care physicians like myself work across many areas of the healthcare system. And as I described, I work in the hospital, I work in home care, I work in a clinic, as well as in long-term care. So there is really an emerging body of research uh, speaking about burnout for palliative care physicians and palliative care uh, clinicians uh, broadly. And that's because palliative care is a bit of a newer specialty and it's only really in you know the last few years uh, that I've seen research that has reported burnout symptoms in the specialty of palliative medicine. So for example, actually in 2020, there was uh, one of the first studies I've seen in Canada, which uh, talked about a burnout rate of about 38% uh, for palliative care physicians. And that was comparable to a previous study in the US, um, which showed a burnout rate for palliative care specialists uh, ranging from about 33 to 38%. So roughly about the same numbers. Specifically, um, because the work that we do is quite emotionally heavy, um, we know that palliative care physicians may definitely suffer from emotional exhaustion. And, you know, there's a personal cost to providing this care. Uh, time is limited. Uh, there's limited resources and support in our health and social system for palliative care and for people who are suffering with disability and incurable illnesses. And oftentimes we find ourselves trapped in this system, which uh, is completely underfunded and under-resourced. So we talk about our home care system, where there's a huge staffing shortage right now in Ontario, a long-term care system where, you know, really almost everybody or most people who are admitted to long-term care facilities have incurable illnesses and are in need of the palliative care approach. The hospice system as well in Ontario is really underfunded and under-resourced as well. And what that means is that what we are witnessing is that care is rationed and palliative care, very sadly, is a privilege rather than a human right. As we heard from our guests, the idea of burnout is prevalent across care providers. But what causes burnout? We wanted to learn more about the triggering factors contributing to so many care providers experiencing burnout. We asked both Dr. Arya and Dr. McMillan to explain these factors from their research and experiences. So I think the, the, you know, the specific causes of burnout could be quite different for different health workers. For example, for physicians, there may be moral distress at seeing preventable suffering and death. And often there's moral distress at seeing other health workers in the system who are not well supported. Because um, although we're talking about different health workers, it's very important for us to realize that actually healthcare you know, is not part of a silo and different health workers don't practice in a silo either. We all work on teams and really I would, you know, ask anybody who's listening to think of the healthcare system and different professions in the healthcare system as more of a circuit. 
So when we have nurses who are burnt out, dealing with short staffing, uh, facing you know abuse or violence, um, not having proper working conditions, when that's happening to PSWs, that affects us. When there's a crisis happening in you know long-term care facilities, for example, where there's not enough resources and there's not enough staff, that affects the hospital. So that really speaks to how intertwined our systems are. And we have to make sure that our governments and our health and social safety net doesn't just sort of ask health workers to rise to the call of duty, but also supports them. And a healthy workforce is essential to the health of our patients and their families and the communities. So it's once again, something that we need to address. Working in long-term care facilities and even in other areas like home care, I can tell you another issue that I've come across in uh, PSWs and nurses is job insecurity. So I've uh, sort of spoken to many people who are working part-time jobs in these sort of uh, sectors of the healthcare system. I've spoken to people who are undocumented, who are temp agency workers. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, sort of just waking up in the morning, not knowing what your day is going to look like, not knowing who's going to call you, or having to sort of cobble together these multiple part-time jobs is definitely a major issue. And what that means is we need to sort of improve the working conditions once again by, as we talked about, fixing understaffing, but also making sure people have permanent jobs and making sure we're not relying on people to be what we call permatemping, where, you know, they're just working for temp agencies and that continues for like, you know, months and months and often years. So this is something we have to definitely look at. And it's something which, once again, must be addressed as a crisis because we know that burnout is actually rising and, you know, honestly reaching epidemic proportions in healthcare. You know, there's a there's been research that's clearly articulated that nurse leaders are highly impactful as it pertains to nursing burnout. Um, nurse leaders play a, a significant role in reducing it and they, they do that by being a competent leader and competent leaders reduce burnout by empowering and promoting nurse engagement. Those things don't cost money, right? So the, the narrative that this is all budget-based um, doesn't come, come through all the time. Leadership styles, so being authentic, transformational, creating a healthy work environment. Like a lot of those things don't have a fiscal tag attached to them. And those kinds of leaders, so nursing managers, nursing executives, like nursing has to take ownership for this too, in terms of uh, our leadership and our, our roles as leaders within institutions. We still have to represent and support our frontline nurses. Those leaders, those nurse leaders are gatekeepers to frontline nurses. They're, they're the liaison between the admin that make the decisions and the nurses who have to deal with the decisions that are made. And they need to step up. And, and, you know, I often think we see this narrative from healthcare leaders is that, well, we don't get enough money from the government as like this excuse for not addressing burnout. And at the end of the day, that's all it is, is it's an excuse. And it costs a lot less money to retain staff than it does to perpetually onboard new staff because of chronic burnout that drives nurses out of these institutions. It seems like we're always in, in a bit of a crisis management scenario in healthcare. And it's, you know, we talk all the time about upstream planning and upstream planning, but it doesn't ever come to fruition. I'll add that, you know, we see this phenomenon, which I've referred to, and I want to specifically call out the name of this phenomenon, and that's presenteeism. So presenteeism means that people come to work, 
uh, instead of taking time off when they need it and they deserve it. And they come to work even when they're feeling unwell. And that could be by feeling unwell, it could mean that their physical or their mental health is compromised. But over the long run, we what we know that that contributes to errors. We know that that contributes to burnout for sure. And we know that contributes to, once again, people leaving the healthcare system. Another issue that I wanted to speak about is related to sort of the roles. When we ask people to take on things that are outside of their scope of expertise, once again, all linked to the previous factors, that's definitely an issue. And that also is, you know, once again, it's linked to understaffing. So if you're sort of short-staffed, for example, in an emergency department or in a long-term care facility, you often will just ask any nurse to come in or any physician to step into, into that place because you'll think, well, at least I'm, you know, filling a shift where I have someone to cover and care for the patients. But in the long run, that's obviously not good because it leads to sort of this conflict and it leads to these incompatible expectations and, you know, sort of once again contributes to gator burnout. And then, you know, an issue which I sort of talked about already is related to moral distress. When we see sort of governments are not taking the right course of action and we see unnecessary and preventable suffering and death on the front lines, I mean, very obviously that contributes to trauma, that contributes to moral distress. And, you know, I just remember, you know, I talked about my experiences working in long-term care where very little to no action was actually taken by the government in spite of the high degree of suffering and unnecessary deaths that occurred in, in these facilities. And specifically, I remember working in Peel Region on the hospital COVID unit Almost everyone that I saw in the third wave was either an essential worker or a family member of an essential worker. And at the same time, we saw our governments telling everyone to stay home. But people that I was caring for and, you know, the community that I was providing care for, uh, you know, the people couldn't stay home because so many people worked in, you know, these essential sort of service jobs like manufacturing, trucking, driving a taxi. And, you know, these were the people who were actually keeping the economy going and risking their lives during a pandemic. Uh, I remember talking to my ICU and emergency department colleagues at that time, and they were intubating one patient per hour due to COVID-19 at that time. So um, it really took, you know, a humanitarian disaster in our hospitals for governments to take action and, for example, to implement policies that were proactive, like paid sick days, to divert vaccines to hotspot regions like Peel Region or Scarborough. Uh, but undoubtedly, there was a cost to this on, on the workforce, where it led to a high degree of moral distress, to trauma, and it led to a, actually a lot of people just quitting, quitting their job because they just couldn't handle it. And, and, you know, I do, in that regard, I do think it's unfair for us to say that the government should fix it. Because they're so far removed from what's happening at the bedside. It's like me being asked to solve a problem that I know nothing about. I'm not going to be an effective problem solver. And, you know, then the best way that government will attend to that is just like giving the institutions money. But if the institutions aren't using them properly, then it's not going to fix the problem, right? Like even this past year, we know that in Ontario, there's a massive nursing shortage. So the government, well, well intentioned, funded 800 more nursing seats. But the issue falls in the workplace. Like nurses are leaving because of the work environment. They're not leaving because they don't want to be nurses. So it's unfair for us to put that on government that's so far removed from the actual complexities of the problem. 
But if he isn't the government, who does the responsibility of care provider burnout fall on? In our discussion, Dr. McMillan shared more about how nurses are impacted at the individual level, particularly during the pandemic. I think that's a really good question. And I think nurses are put in a very hard position. They're sort of in between a rock and a hard place. So uh, one thing that comes to mind is um, vacation. So routine vacation, we've heard, I've heard in research, but also anecdotally from my colleagues that are still at the bedside is like, so during the first sort of first and second waves, vacation was denied. And I don't think that's fair because what's happening is, so these staffing shortages in, in nursing are chronic in this country and began well before the pandemic. So the pandemic cannot be used as an excuse. It's a systems issue. And so really what that means coming from my perspective, is that institutions who failed to address these chronic staffing issues are now essentially um, punishing nurses for institutional failings. And they're doing so by denying nurses time off when they need it most. And, And what I think what frustrates me the most is then they have the audacity to publicly praise nurses as heroes. And I think that creates tension that, that makes me very uncomfortable. And, you know, some of the research I did with palliative and end-of-life nurses during the second wave of COVID really highlighted the importance of time off. Nurses described repeatedly being denied vacation during COVID, and it served as, as a breaking point for them. That, you know, what they truly needed was to just a little bit of time to recoup and prepare for whatever waves were coming. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if this denied time off over the course of the pandemic has directly contributed to the drastic increase in poor mental health outcomes for nurses that we're seeing during the pandemic. And I do think this has served as a breaking point for a lot of nurses who were sort of just holding on and being like, uh, you know, maybe I'll look somewhere else in, in a year or two, maybe I'll wait it out till retirement. And this was, there's no other options for a lot of them. So they left. Emily and Simone also share their perspectives on this. Emily highlights the lasting impact of political decisions as well as the effects of the politicization of science during the pandemic on healthcare provider burnout. I also think there's going to be a lot more issues around the anger that healthcare providers have, um, just even politically. I think that there's a lot of burnout about the advocacy piece again, the constant advocating for, you know, more PPE, so um, personal protective equipment, the constant um, advocating for more staff, the more advocating for, you know, better safety. And also there's, again, the issues with advocating for people to take the science seriously. I think that's a huge piece. I think we are healthcare workers in particular, um, and I'm not just isolating it to clinicians, uh, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, um, but all hospital staff, there's a constant feeling of being burnt out from asking people to get vaccinated and telling people the risks that are involved and how truly devastating this virus is. I think that's going to take a huge toll. And I think that there is already a little bit of, I don't want to say segregation, but it almost feels like segregation between the kind of hospital community and then other members of communities that might not be taking the the virus as seriously. And, you know, there's a lot of mistrust there. And I think that has created such a significant burden um, among healthcare providers. And 
a little bit of mistrust within the political system as well, right? You know, there's that huge issue going on with Bill 124 about um, raises for nurses um, and in comparison to other uh, other like working industries similar to nursing. So I think that there's going to be a burnout from that advocacy piece and nurses just feeling and other healthcare workers um, feeling undervalued by by the community, by society. Next, Simone speaks about her experiences as a resident and the unrealistic expectations placed on trainees. As a resident, we work such long hours. You know, there's 80-hour work weeks, and those are incredibly draining. You're working six days a week, and you get one day off, so about four days off a month, and that's very little. And to come home and recognize that in a day, you need to do your laundry, you need to do your chores, you need to wash your dishes, there's a lot that needs to get done in that one day that it leads to very little time to actually relax and enjoy the Netflix that shows that you really wanna watch or to spend time calling your family or calling your friends. And so it really is draining to see what residents go through day after day. And although it becomes easier typically as residency gets, you know, as you pass by, as you get older, you still have very few weekends typically in a total residency program. And that's really hard for a lot of people outside of healthcare to be able to conceptualize what that actually means. In healthcare, we say a golden weekend, which means a Saturday and a Sunday off. And for a lot of people that's normalized um, in the world where they work five days a week and a weekend comes and that's exciting. But with a golden weekend, what that means to a resident is that it's rare. And that in itself is a problem and really frustrating for many people to know. Another thing is sleep. When you work such long hours and you have so many other commitments that you need to do, residents get very little sleep. And as we know from a lot of different studies that have been done, sleep is important and it's key to our mental and our physical well-being. And so seven or eight hours of sleep may seem normal to some people, but for many residents, that's very rare uh, because they have to wake up early, they get home late, and they have to eat and you know do other things that they need in order to you know care about other things outside of the work that they do every day. Emily, who finished her nursing degree during the pandemic, continues to share her own experiences with burnout. You know, on the one end, I had the physical symptoms of pregnancy, which were rougher than I expected. But really, it was the mental burnout and the emotional burnout that I think affected me the most. So I was extremely privileged. um, And I want to make sure that I recognize that the amount of privilege that I had going into this training program, even pregnant, is significant. So I had a very, very supportive group of other clinical students. And I also had a very supportive nursing preceptor and the unit that I was on was extremely supportive. They knew that I was pregnant and they also were really sympathetic to the fact that COVID was new and we didn't know what was going on and we didn't know what was safe. So I did feel a sense of support and protection while I was there, but I certainly experienced some burnout emotionally. So I was placed on a geriatric medicine unit and The patient population there was a lot of dementia and a lot of Alzheimer's, um, a lot of cognitive decline and failure to thrive. And emotionally, that's really hard. Um, As a new nurse, it's, it's really hard to provide the appropriate care for this type of population as well as their families. So during COVID, 
it was really difficult to explain what was going on. Um, it was difficult to explain what the virus was. It was hard to implement masking policy among the patients. It was really hard to keep them socially distanced from one another. And social socialization is such a huge part of their their care as well, right? So implementing all the safety precautions was taxing. It was extremely difficult. It was also really difficult if someone did become COVID positive. I think that's when, for me, the burnout really started to take take a huge role in how I was feeling just about the, the whole situation, the pandemic, my health, my safety, my baby's safety, and also my performance, right? So I also had to be aware of how I was performing in clinical because I was being evaluated. But when someone on the unit became COVID positive, that's kind of where it felt like, okay, I really need to self-advocate. When you see patients that are positive and they do have dementia, perhaps they're like a risk for wandering, we have to put them in their room and ensure that they stay in their room. And when someone doesn't understand that, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, just walking by their room and you see their window and you know that they want to come out and they want to socialize, but they don't understand is it's horrible. And it's so hard to see and so hard to watch. And then communicating that to their family, it's devastating. And it's it's coming from a, a safety perspective, right? We don't want anyone else to be infected. Um, but you also, you've, you've created a relationship with that patient. You've created a relationship with that person. And so creating space, physical space and a physical boundary is, it's not the type of care that you want to deliver. Simone and Yuzani, who are both psychiatry residents, also shared their personal experiences with burnout. So as a resident physician, especially when going through the pandemic, you wanted to help so many different people. Many people were called on to different to work in different specialty areas because they needed people. And so to be able to walk into a room and recognize that you were working day to day around those that, you know, you didn't know much about what COVID was or the impact of COVID and what that could do to you when you went home from work at the end of the day was really hard. And another thing that I think is really important for people to recognize is that many resident physicians are unable to even attend their own doctor's appointments. And so a lot of the times we advocate for our patients to go see their primary care doctor or their OB-GYN to get their pap smear every three years when they're in their 20s. But a lot of my co-residents are not doing that on their own. There's been times where I have not seen a doctor for three or four years. I have not gotten my OB-GYN's pap smear that's recommended every three years. And so a lot of these things that we are advocating for ourselves, we are not even able to do because if you're working from 7 a.m. in the morning to 5 p.m. in the afternoon or later, there's and you're unable to go to a doctor during that period. Doctors aren't open for business on Saturdays and Sundays or evenings, or at least very few are. So, you know, it becomes an issue where if you are not actually focused on your physical health, that is really going to cause issue with your mental health as well. So it's quite a cycle that we all need to take into consideration. With burnout, it's not necessarily related to 
um, just feeling like overworked. And it's not necessarily related to, you know, just feeling like you have so many responsibilities that you're busy all the time that you have absolutely no time for yourself. And that really isn't my experience either, admittedly. Um, a few of the points that really stood out to me that I think contribute to burnout is, first of all, it can be related to excessive workload and feeling just like overburdened with so many responsibilities. I think it can also be related to just inefficiencies during the workday. So if a lot of what I do um, is actually not related to patient care. A lot of it is administrative stuff. A lot of it is paperwork, documentation. And that is definitely not the most enjoyable part of being a resident or being a doctor. Um, so that can definitely weigh on, weigh on people a lot of the time. Um, other contributors include um, just having less time to spend on other meaningful activities. Um, I think especially in medical school, I was, I tried to be involved in so many different things. And to an extent, it kind of lifted my spirits a little bit because it gave me something else to focus on. And I'm trying really hard to maintain that in residency, but it's just kind of like a burden on a burden. Sometimes it, it kind of just feels like even more on my plate. So just feeling like I don't have time for other things that I care about. Um, and I think one of the big things that people don't really talk a lot about, especially relevant to trainees, so medical students and residents, is kind of a lack of control and autonomy. Because um, at the end of the day, we're all adult learners, like we're all adults, we are still students and trainees and a lot to learn, obviously. But at the same time, I think people forget that we have our own lives, we have our own commitments, um, we have a bunch of other things going on in our lives outside of our nine to five job of doing medicine. There's a lot going on. And I think sometimes um, it feels like people only see us for the work that we provide as opposed to as complete whole humans with other things that are stressing us out and other things that we have to take care of too. And I think that also translates into the medical education system in a lot of ways too, where we really don't have a lot of control over our own schedules, our own hours, how many patients we see, when we see patients. Um, and it can be really hard to be, you know, in, in one respect, be an adult and kind of have that sort of control outside of your work, but then in the work environment, feel like um, you're really restricted in terms of how you wanna be doing the work that you're doing um, and just kind of being told what to do um, a lot of the time. As we've heard so far, everyone experiences burnout differently and people's experiences are shaped by their personal responsibilities, work environment, as well as the identities they hold. Yazarni tells us more about how underrepresented students in medicine, such as those from Black, Indigenous, and low socioeconomic communities, may experience burnout differently. Just to um, position myself a little bit, you know, I, I come from a background where I identify as male, um, and I think there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. At the same time, um, I'm a racialized male from a, a sexual minority. Um, so also a, a lot of um, more marginalized identifiers kind of fall under the intersection that I am, I guess. I think like you mentioned, burnout definitely affects everyone differently and it can affect anyone in medicine, no matter how privileged you are. At the same time, I think there are numerous, numerous additional stressors and factors that contribute to the burnout of underrepresented medical trainees. I think even just stemming from the fact that there, there aren't a lot of us, right? Um, just not feeling represented within this community that we now somehow belong to, but we're not really seeing ourselves reflected in the supervisors that are mentoring us or our teachers or our lecturers or, you know, the leadership of medicine. Sometimes we don't see 
someone that looks like us in those positions and it contributes to us feeling like an imposter. Imposter syndrome is like a huge thing. It contributes to us feeling like in order to continue to secure our place, we, we need to just kind of shut up and stay silent and keep our heads low and just kind of continue um, doing our work without really disrupting the system um, or really like bringing things up if, if we're the victim of discrimination or other sort of injustices imparted towards us, just a lack of safety in terms of, you know, being able to advocate for ourselves. And then in other ways too, I think, you know, because there are fewer people coming from underrepresented backgrounds, when there are a few of us, the risk of us being tokenized is quite huge as well, in which, you know, it's really easy for a lot of our institutions to kind of put us on a pedestal and say like, look at, look at this, look at like the, the EDI that, um, you know, we can see in our program, but a lot of that burden really falls on these minoritized students. They're the ones who are responsible for keeping up this image, this public image that they represent diversity for these huge institutions. They're also usually the ones working behind the scenes, a part of grassroots programs and unpaid work and other sort of volunteer positions to try and pave the way for more underrepresented students to kind of join our medical community as well. Um, a lot of that work is falling on them. And like I mentioned, I think the unpaid part is a huge part too, because typically, you know, these are jobs that people get paid for and that, you know, people's time are, um, are compensated for. And that just isn't the case for a lot of um, people doing this work. And beyond that, um, so I think, you know, attracting and recruiting a diverse population of people is one thing, but the second part that I don't think people talk about enough is ensuring that they're safe once they're in the system, right? Um, because again, like we don't really have this huge breadth of role models to turn to. Um, and when we do fall victim to discrimination or injustice, we don't know where to go. We don't know who we can rely on, who is willing to keep us safe, who we can turn to for support. Um, a lot of those supports aren't in place. So the recruitment part is really just half the problem. It's really also about how do you keep these underrepresented uh, minority trainees safe once they're actually in a system that is historically you know, built on white supremacy and like male dominance and, you know, all of these privileges that we don't necessarily have or share access to. So that's probably just like the tip of the iceberg, but needless to say, I think there's a lot of additional burden that falls onto underrepresented um, minorities in medicine. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, people stood on their balconies and in the streets banging pots and pans, cheering and clapping for healthcare workers. Throughout this time, we saw a rise in the narrative that our physicians, nurses, and other healthcare staff were heroes for risking their health and safety to care for people. So we asked our guests how they feel about the phrase healthcare heroes. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of damage that I think is associated with that term healthcare hero. I think off the bat, it kind of postulates people in healthcare to be invincible, to be superhuman in a way in that, you know, they're able to handle this pandemic and the burden of this pandemic and they're taking care of really sick people without any acknowledgement that a lot of us are going through our own challenges. A lot of us are um, personally seeing the repercussions of this pandemic in our personal lives, let alone our work lives. And, you know, it's one thing to kind of have that label put on us publicly, but then it doesn't translate into any sort of protection or any sort of um, policies that help support us. Um, a huge example of this was over the course of the pandemic, the fight for paid sick days and making sure that, you know, any healthcare provider who was at risk of being infected or had a confirmed infection, that they could have the adequate amount of time 
um, off work. Um, and that just wasn't the case for so many um, healthcare providers. And it's just this expectation that, you know, we're able to kind of persevere through all of this without any support for ourselves, I think is kind of the precedent that was set with such a term of like healthcare hero. And I think it just further glamorizes medicine and healthcare in many different ways as well. Of course, you know, we're, we are so privileged in so many different ways, socioeconomically, but at the same time, there are a lot of challenges within healthcare that people don't talk about and that people don't know of before they join the healthcare force either. Um, so I think that term has been kind of damaging in terms of downplaying and um, kind of brushing all of those concerns aside. I think in the medical community or healthcare as a clinician, there is, you know, and even academic, I'm going to even throw that in there too. There is this um, culture of, I think what's masked as resilience, but it's not true resilience. It's actually more of like a push through anything culture and a like, go, go, go. Don't let anything hold you back. That's resilience. When like, ultimately that actually isn't resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from something, you know, just that's kind of a vague uh, definition, but it's, it's not, it doesn't mean pushing through when things are hard. Uh, it, I would argue that it actually means the exact opposite. So I think that culture in medicine and in healthcare of you work harder and that's what's celebrated, you know, that kind of constant need for achievement and constant busyness is celebrated. And I think that culture needs to change because that ultimately leads to burnout and it leads to people leaving the profession. And I think that there's also issues around this hero mentality around nurses. Um, I think that's a huge problem. This is their career. This is their their job, but they are full people. They need to go home to their families and have their lives as well. Um, I think that actually does a lot more damage than it does good. And it also has, again, fed into that um, political issue that they're heroes. They just need to be kind of applauded and have pots banging for them at night, uh, but they're not deserving of actual compensation or, you know, perhaps sort of structures systemically that protect them. Uh, in no way am I a healthcare hero, uh, and in no way am I any different than someone who was on the front lines in the grocery store, the postal worker, the police officers, the firefighters. There are so many different people that played a role in taking care of people during this pandemic that I think it's really important for healthcare workers to be appreciated and to be valued for the time that they did spend taking care of those COVID patients but I also do think it's very important to think about everyone else that played a role and maybe didn't have as many precautionary measures as we did inside of a hospital. We were lucky to have N95s. We were lucky to have special insulated rooms. And those aren't things that a lot of grocery store workers were able to have until a little bit later. There are so many people that saw an influx of patients when we didn't even know how COVID truly was transmitted and how sick someone could get at the start of this pandemic. And I think those people are the ones that we truly need to appreciate and we truly need to give back to in regards to counseling, in regards to care, because heroes are only heroes if we are able to give them additional help that they deserve. And now it's time to give back to them and see what we can do to support them in their needs as they're suffering from burnout or emotional distress after this pandemic. Dr. Arya discussed possible solutions to the issue of burnout in healthcare. 
He also gave an interesting perspective on how palliative care training might be beneficial for all clinical trainees. So our colleagues often view death as a failure. They don't understand the, the importance of palliative care. And often palliative care is just pigeonholed into end-of-life care, which leads to moral distress because we often see people that are suffering. They could have benefited from sort of earlier referral to palliative care. And, you know, unfortunately, that's something we have to deal with. And we have to advocate for better palliative care resources on the front lines. But palliative care actually has a lot to contribute to this topic of healthcare worker burnout. And there's many different aspects of palliative care, which are really sort of inherent in the nature of our practice, which can actually give uh, health workers across the system some of the tools to cope with burnout. So for example, you know, palliative care physicians don't view patient death as a personal failure. So on that aspect, we're less likely to be burnt out and we're less likely to feel depressed or stressed. Palliative care physicians work on interdisciplinary teams, and that in a way debunks the traditional hierarchy of medicines where physicians are kind of at the top. And, you know, you've heard that saying that it's, it's lonely at the top. So with this non-hierarchical structure, what it means is that everyone on the team, nurses, spiritual care, social work, PSWs, uh, really everyone has an understanding about human suffering and it allows them to process grief and support each other in a compassionate and non-judgmental way. And we strongly believe that's something that we should integrate across the healthcare system. And, you know, sort of the last aspect that's, I think, really important is that, you know, our field of palliative care is based on compassion. And a lot of other sort of healthcare disciplines, especially from the physician angle, are based on technical aspects of care. And of, of course, those are very important as a palliative care physician, but compassion is really the central sort of facet of what we do and developing relationships because healthcare or care itself is a relationship and it's based on human connection. So palliative care physicians then often use the skill of compassion in other areas of the healthcare system and in other areas of leadership and advocacy as well. So when we notice suffering in our colleagues, we often will respond, uh, you know, empathetically with that suffering and take compassionate action to alleviate it and create this culture of caring and mutual support. So suffering in all its domains and addressing and relieving suffering in all its domains is, is really the, one of the core aspects of palliative care. And we know as physicians, we're human beings who care for other people who are sick, but we also have to care for each other as health workers. So we have to make it a priority that healthcare uh, looks after the health of health workers. And uh, I'll quote uh, sort of one of the uh, national scholars and researchers in long-term care, which is my special area of research and interest and advocacy, Dr. Pat Armstrong. Uh, she's a distinguished professor uh, of sociology at York University, and she famously said, the conditions of work determine the conditions of care. And what that means is that protecting the people who live in long-term care starts by protecting the health workers and improving their working conditions. So that, And this is really something that we can apply across the entire healthcare system. System. So really, we have to address this issue and governments have to come together and realize how important this is. 
Um, we need to hire more nurses and more PSWs, more social workers. Um, and we can only retain these people by making sure that everyone gets a living wage, a decent wage. Uh, everybody gets uh, benefits like paid sick days. Uh, we have to sort of make sure that we provide people full-time jobs. We have to provide people training and education so they're not you know, put out on the front lines not knowing what to expect. And this requires a lot of culture change. And it means that, you know, basically what it means is we're providing people the skills and resources that they need to thrive on the job. Uh, I spoke about how palliative care definitely has a lot to contribute. And I'll add here that uh, I strongly believe, uh, as do many of my colleagues, that palliative care should actually be a required specialty uh, that, you know, all health workers should receive training in. And currently, um, you might be shocked, Atifa, that's actually not the case. So you can be an oncologist or you can be a geriatrician or a family doctor in Canada and actually have no required rotation uh, or skills in palliative care. Uh, similarly, I've heard from my nursing colleagues that there's no required rotation in palliative care. And we spoke about how palliative care not only will provide uh, health workers with the, with the skills to help manage suffering, but it will also help with burnout in health workers by, you know, you know, where we don't view death or suffering always as a failure, but we know how to treat it. We know how to support families. Um, we know how to have better conversations and we improve communication. Palliative care goes against, once again, the hierarchical philosophy or structure of medicine. And I think that's very important. So that's something I wanted to say. And I'll add one other point that we know that um, specifically when we speak about nurses and PSWs and social workers, we're speaking about, uh, you know, a workforce which is feminized. And we're speaking about working women. So what this means is we have to sort of look at the impact of gender in the workplace and have policies like uh, childcare, family leave, paid sick days, access to mental health supports and treatments. All of these should be part of the plan and really, um, you know, should be talked about up front. And I, I think it's time for actually a national conversation about healthcare worker burnout and grief and suffering in uh, health workers. We asked our guests, Emily and Simone, on how to prevent burnout and the types of support they'd like to see for healthcare providers experiencing burnout. So in terms of support, um, I think that one thing that we need to really think about, and, you know, it's hard to come up with practical solutions. You know, we can't use precedented solutions for unprecedented times. We need to be able to think outside of the box. And we can't use the saying, you know, well, we've always done it this way and you know, we did it this way in the past. It's it's not relevant anymore. And you know what? It hasn't been working. So we really need to start thinking about using unprecedented solutions and unprecedented ways of thinking for an unprecedented time. There are so many different ways in which we need to incorporate training, but a, a training through going and watching a video or answering multiple choice questions via a quiz that you're assigned after completing a training is not the answer to how we figure out how to deal with burnout and stress and depression and suicide in healthcare. There are so many other things that we need to change at an institutional level to come up with opportunities for residents to be able to take part in, whether that's giving out mini grants so wellness you know, is at the center and forefront of an institution for residents to create their own initiatives to be able to start change, whether that is about creating counseling opportunities for residents 
at various institutions or whether it's even having a wellness champion at every residency program that can just ask how people are doing and figure out what problems exist in order to help us understand what solutions we can create. Also, another thing that really is important for institutions to do is to focus on free and accessible counseling services. So it really is important that there should be a psychologist or a social worker that is on staff specifically for graduate medical education to be able to focus on providing confidential services for residents. There was a study that was recently done in graduate medical education that found that a lot of people didn't go see someone because they were worried about the stigma of it, the cost of it, the accessibility of it. So my idea would be for an opt-out method to occur where institutions recognize that if they offer services to everyone at first and they make it mandatory for a resident to go see someone and provide that time during the work day, people will have to go unless they choose not to. And that provides a way for everyone to understand and appreciate the importance of mental health, which I think is really central to this conversation about why those in healthcare aren't choosing to go worry and think about seeing a mental health professional on their own. Changing the medical culture, which has perpetuated the cycle of burnout for many years, is a necessary but difficult endeavor. Yazarni shares with us the realities of breaking that cycle for trainees. I think sometimes it just feels like medical education is such a beast and that it's, it's such a huge institution that feels like it's always kind of been that way. So like, how do you disrupt a system that's been persisting the same way for so long. Um, sometimes it really feels impossible. I think something that is so prevalent in medicine is that, and something that I've heard from a lot of supervisors, and sometimes the way that I also think in terms of when I interact with junior trainees, is this notion of, you know, I went through a tough time, like it was really, really difficult for me, but like I survived it and I got through it and like you just need to power through it because that's just the way that it is. And also kind of this notion that if you can't handle it at this level, then how are you ever going to be um, an independent physician who is autonomous and capable of doing all this on your own? And sometimes I have to catch myself too, because even when I'm supervising like medical students or uh, more junior trainees, um, sometimes that thought creeps up in my head too. You know, like I went through a really tough time in medical school. It's just universally really tough. You just kind of have to like roll up your sleeves and get through it. But I really have to catch myself and try not to perpetuate that idea to the best of my ability. Um, because just because things have always been hard doesn't mean that it needs to continue that way or it's necessarily the right way to do things. Emily Simone and Dr. McMillan graciously shared what helped them through their recovery from burnout with our listeners, especially to those who are healthcare providers or learners. So what really helped me through burnout was very interestingly, um, something I never would have considered was I did a pilot self-compassion meditation program that was offered from the university. And it was, yeah, it was for specifically for healthcare workers. And it was fantastic. And I didn't have a regular meditation or mindfulness practice in place at all. It was kind of always something I heard about and I knew there were significant benefits to it, but I just, I was like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time to sit still for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes when really it was the best thing I probably ever did. Um, those 20 minutes to half an hour even sometimes gave me so much more mental space during the day. 
Um, and self-compassion is such a huge piece to burnout, such a huge piece to being able to advocate for yourself, being able to kind of listen to see what you really need. So that was a phenomenal experience for me. And I encourage anybody that is experiencing any type of, you know, stress, burnout, even none of those things to try um, a type of meditation practice or self-compassion. It was, yeah, it was a great piece for me. I also, from that experience, I came to a conclusion that I couldn't do the 12 hours on my feet anymore. Um, I was 32 to 33 weeks pregnant at the end of one of my placements with a few weeks to go. And turning patients or helping support with ambulation, it was just getting, it was getting really hard for me. And so I had to advocate and say, I need a reduction in hours. I need to maybe do a seven to four, seven to five, as opposed to seven to seven. And I was exhausted from advocating for myself. I want to emphasize that it's very hard to be alone and kind of say, I don't feel safe doing that. And I'm sorry that I have to leave the team or I can't take on that patient or I can't do that specific nursing task. It's really difficult, especially as a trainee, but understanding that it's for my own safety was really important. And so I think being able to advocate and say, you know what, I'm, I am burnt out and I need a reduction of hours to get through this and also get through it safely and make sure that everybody is safe, not just myself and my baby, but also the team is safe. The patients are safe. Everybody is safe. So I think that also was really important for me. My family was a great support system in regards to recovering from burnout. I also have mentors within the field of psychiatry that are in my residency program that I felt comfortable talking to. I would advise that everyone in healthcare identify someone that they can check in with weekly in order to be able to discuss some of the stressors that they are enduring. So for example, the person that I talk to weekly is someone that I can talk about difficult patient cases with. Because a lot of the times when I visualize a challenging patient case, it's something that I think about and it causes me to be overwhelmed because I wonder if I did something wrong or if I should have done something differently. And so having a person that I can talk to about this specific patient case that I might be dwelling on every week is an opportunity for me to get help. It is also really important for me to engage with other people within my residency program. And so one of the roles that I've taken in within my residency program is trying to bring people together and finding ways to create a network. And so you don't feel alone because when you are all having a feeling of being isolated, especially secondary to COVID, that becomes really challenging and you feel like no one else cares and no one else is having those thoughts. But you recognize that when you invite others over, whether it be for a socially distanced activity or even through a Zoom chat, um, you know, those sorts of things provide a way for me to be able to engage with someone else, learn from them and bounce ideas off of them of how I can successfully understand and appreciate some of the patient encounters that I've had that week before. I think a good therapist can really help people. I think Looking at the way that we've developed beliefs about what is success is really important or what is performance and what what makes a good nurse, doctor, occupational therapist. We need to start challenging those and challenging the the narratives around them and understanding the, you know, the patterns of thinking that we all have. I think 
that might go further than resilience training, but I'm not discounting resilience training at all, but changing resilience into a more holistic perspective of being able to cope and cope well. I think that's more appropriate way perspective to look at resilience than pushing through when things get hard. You know, being able to compartmentalize is great, but I don't think that's sustainable and I don't think that's going to last for too long. So how can you best cope with things that are hard and perform appropriately and and perform the way that you want to? Like, I want to be a great nurse that connects with my patients. So I don't want to just get through my day. I want to be able to give what I can. And so I have to make sure that my tank is completely full and recharged in an effort to do that. Advice that I would give to any new graduate entering right now, when looking to get hired, ask very pointed questions in an interview. You are interviewing your employer at the same time. And, you know, so one of the things that came up a lot in this last round of data collection I did, orientation. What is the orientation program? How many hours am I provided? Is there mentorship programs for new graduate nurses here? What's your attrition rate? These are questions that you should, you could ask and a humble employer will answer, right? Um, what strategies do you implement to support nurse retention? How do you support psychologically safe work environments? How do you maintain nurses' health and well-being? And I mean, why should I work here? Because realistically, there are so many nursing jobs and, and to maintain your own health and well-being, you need to work in a space that values mental health. So if, if an employer can't answer those questions, it means that they're not paying attention to them. And that's problematic. So I think nursing graduates are in a unique position, I think right now, because the supply and demand is shifting. So there's way more demand, I think, than there is supply. So you, you can find an institution that will support you. It just takes asking the right questions. And to those in leadership roles in healthcare who are listening right now, Yazarni wraps up our episode with a few words on radical compassion towards trainees. If there's anything you take away from listening to this episode today, we hope it's this. I guess like one thing that I wanted to mention before, but it's just coming back to me now, is a term that I've heard throughout my training and throughout um, residency so far, usually from the, the leadership team um, or like from the department as a whole is radical acceptance. And it's kind of like, for residents and trainees to just accept that it is a really challenging situation around you and that things are just going to be hard. It's always been hard. It's just kind of the way things are. And I think that that could also be really damaging just to continue to perpetuate that idea. Um, Like I mentioned before, I think at baseline, just in terms of the bare bones residency training, it's going to be hard to begin with just because we're coming in with very little knowledge. And every day, like we're trying to rapidly absorb all this information around us and learn new skills and develop our own identity as physicians, like on its own, that is a very challenging process. When you add on, you know, all these additional demands and expectations from supervisors and feeling out of control in terms of your schedule and all this documentation and administrative work, um, it really becomes a lot on top of, you know, a baseline already stressful experience. So I think if any faculty members or if any sort of program um, leadership is listening out there, what I would challenge you to do is something called radical compassion for trainees and medical students. You know, if you're identifying that your trainee is not 
performing as well as they could be, or if they're not, you know, meeting your expectations as best as they could be, really delve into why that might be the case instead of immediately turning to like a punitive measure or criticism. Just really think of that person as, you know, a whole human with many other things probably going through in their minds, in their lives. Um, and then really try and connect with your trainee on like a human level to understand why they might be struggling as opposed to just kind of immediately jumping to criticizing them. So I hope that's helpful in case any faculty members are listening out there. As always, a special thank you to our guests on this episode, Drs. Kim McMillan, Amit Arya, Yazarni Wynn, Simone Bernstein, as well as Emily Rowland. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Helen, and Atifa. Larkin was the content developer, Alex was the audio engineer, and Nora was the executive producer. Tune in again in two weeks for episode 102 on science and social media. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. 